presented by the Common Sense Institute. Welcome to Common Sense Digest, the podcast that seeks to inject a little common sense into Arizona's policy discussion. Here's your host, Earl Wright. Welcome to Common Sense Digest podcast. My name is Earl Wright, and I'm the chairman of the Common Sense Institute. Thank you for joining us. With the decriminalization of the possession and the use of illegal drugs in some jurisdictions, the surge in migrant encounters along the U.S.-Mexican border, and the recent increase in fentanyl overdoses in Arizona, we thought it would be worth exploring what impacts these events may have in law enforcement in the Arizona, Arizona economy. With over 2,000 fatal opioid overdoses occurring in Arizona in 2021, it is evident there is a drug crisis in America. Joining this conversation, our report, Arthur, and Director of Policy and Research at CSI, Glenn Farley, and Joe Dickinson. Glenn Farley has worked in the office of the Arizona governor, most recently as Doug Ducey's chief economist and a policy advisor. Glenn has also led the budget team that produced the executive revenue forecasts and caseload spending numbers that have helped ensure the longest run of conservative, structurally balanced budgets in the state's history. Welcome, Glenn, and that is an incredible accomplishment in today's environment. Well, thanks again, Earl. It's a pleasure to, to see you again and be back with you. Job Dickinson is a retired law enforcement officer of the Tucson Police Department. He served as a patrol officer, undercover surveillance officer, auto theft investigator, field training officer, patrol sergeant, and special events sergeant. As an auto theft investigator, Job worked on several cases with Border Crimes Nexus. Job is currently the president of the Border Security Alliance as well as executive director for the Combined Law Enforcement Associations of Arizona. Welcome, Joe. That's quite a background. Well, thank you, Earl. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on today. Before we begin, if you'd like more background on the discussion today, listeners can find CSI's latest report regarding this topic titled Fentanyl, Crime in Arizona's Southern Border," dated August 22nd on CSI's website, www.commonsenseinstituteaz.org. I really encourage all of you to read it because it's a it's fundamentally astonishing uh, the information that is there and the impact and the magnitude of what the problem we currently have. But let's get started. Glenn, let's start with the increasing issue of fentanyl in the state of Arizona. In your report, you found that fentanyl was involved in over half of Arizona's overdoses, but prescription opioids are involved in only 35% of the cases. What astonished me in the report is I had no idea of how the fentanyl overdoses have increased. Since 2017, fentanyl was only involved in 4% of the Arizona overdoses. Can you give us some insight as to why you think the proportion of overdoses related to illegal drugs has increased so significantly? Absolutely, Earl, and that's a that's a great question and uh, a perfect segue into really what is the crux and core point of the report. Let me preface by saying I don't claim it's a simple subject, and I, I'm not going to claim that we got everything and we didn't miss everything. But the report zeroes in on three proximate causes that combined and together created, I think, the current opioid crisis. The first and potentially the most interesting, depending on perspective, is is really the crackdown on the use and abuse of prescription opioids, like you alluded to in your question, uh, that culminated in and around 2016. In 2016, the federal government 
through the CDC issued new guidelines to states and practitioners related to how and when they should write prescriptions for opioids. The states responded by adjusting their policy. Many states, including Arizona, passed bills restricting the amount that physicians could prescribe, when they could prescribe them, who could prescribe them. And physicians themselves voluntarily restricted. Insurance companies pressured them. Uh, medical systems pressured them. And so in response, practitioners just voluntarily uh, began to reduce the number of opioid prescriptions they were writing. Now, this was 100% the intent, but but the consequence was within just a handful of years, we'd cut the number of active prescription painkillers uh, in the United States roughly in half. At the same time, we saw an explosion in the use of illegal fentanyl and street substitutes, illegal opioids, um, often mixed with or manufactured primarily with fentanyl or other synthetics. At the same time that we did this in 2016, we began this kind of experimentation with increased tolerance for the open use of illegal drugs. So we're, we're cracking down on the use and yes, the abuse for, for legal or gray market prescription drugs. But at the same time, we're saying we're gonna be more tolerant or turn a blind eye to the open use of illegal drugs on the streets. Uh, some of this was overt legalization. A lot of this was just decriminalization. So, so a Colorado or a California may not have uh, outright decriminalized use or possession of harder drugs like fentanyl, but they loosened either reduced the penalties or went from felony to misdemeanor or even just stopped enforcing the laws already on the books. And so that made it relatively easier for folks to consume illegal drugs like street fentanyl. At the same time, we made it harder for them to consume legal drugs like prescription opioids. And then finally, the linchpin that finally sort of broke the back of this was the collapse in border security in 2020. So historically, fentanyl was produced mostly in the West and tightly controlled. Uh, the rise of the Chinese pharmaceutical industry meant that there was a significant increase in the amount of fentanyl being produced on the planet, and it, and it was being produced for cheap. Mexico became the conduit by which this cheap, abundant Chinese and East Asian fentanyl reaches the United States. CBP was doing its best, and we see this in the data, to stop and interdict that in the period between roughly 2016 and 2020. But after 2020, when migrant encounters surge, there's a coincident collapse in CBP seizures of drugs on the southern border. So you've got the crackdown on prescription drugs, the relaxation of enforcement of illegal street drugs, and then the collapse in security on the southern border. Any one of those by themselves, probably not a disaster. All three at the same time, I think, led to the current opioid crisis. Sounds to me like you're describing a perfect storm. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't have... Uh done more from a legal perspective in the United States than we have done by uh, uh, decriminalizing drugs or coming close to that, particularly in some of the states we're involved in. Joe, with the collapse of federal enforcement at the border, which is one of the three that Glenn mentioned, how have the state and local enforcement uh, officials had to respond? What's the impact for them? There's been a lot of strain on our local police, our sheriffs, and our state uh, troopers. You know, with the federal agents no longer to stop the flow of illegal immigrants, they're not patrolling the border anymore. They're more babysitters at these places where hundreds and thousands of migrants are coming across a day. Those responsibilities are being taken up by local police. It's every day that I see a news story in Tucson, Phoenix, you know, hundreds of miles away from the border that we're stopping cars with illegal immigrants, as well as, you know, 50,000 fentanyl pills or, you know, fentanyl powder, which is a big one as well, where they're sending the powder up here and then it's being processed in the United States. Local law enforcement 
just about in every community in this country, you know, we're short staffed, we're struggling with staffing and adding these responsibilities. It's making it a lot more difficult for us to follow what we're there for. I mean, we're there for local 911 calls to help keep the peace in the neighborhood. And so with a, those extra responsibilities added to us, it's difficult for us to uh, maintain our, you know, times for normal call service. Joe, I'm going to ask you a question, which maybe you don't want to answer. And if you don't, that's okay with me. And I think our, our listeners would understand. If we were properly staffed with our Border Patrol, uh, and if we had the proper staffing at our local police domains or localities, how much of an impact, if any, do you think we'd have on this surge of fentanyl across the border? I think that's a two-part question, and they're both very good, um, very good answers there. If we had proper policies, Border Patrol isn't that understaffed. If we had proper border policies to funnel the people and the products coming into this nation through ports, that's the important part where more, you know, vetting of the people, vetting of the products, seizures of illegal products can take place. Um, that then frees up our Border Patrol agents to patrol those other routes. And those other routes are the smuggling routes, and, and it gives them the time to stop that. So by just securing the border, having better policies down there, you ultimately free up the time of Border Patrol agents. And then with that said, that limits a lot of the stuff coming north from the southern border. And that then in turn frees up time for local law enforcement. I mean, I'll tell you, 20 years Plus ago in this industry, there were times where I got to do on-site activity as a police officer. We had the right staffing and I took my calls for service and then I would go on-site criminal activity. I wouldn't just respond to criminal activity. I would pursue it. And these days in law enforcement, that's not the case. Everything is just a response to a crime and taking a report of something that's already happened already has all the impacts of those negative uh, incidents. So you're in effect saying you can't be proactive, you have to be reactive, and that's a losing game is what I hear you saying. Absolutely. Glenn, uh, the report includes an estimated cost of fentanyl in this fentanyl crisis in Arizona. In 2021, fentanyl-related deaths uh, cost $53 billion. Glenn, I, I don't want to challenge your number, my friend, but $53 billion is higher than the state budget of Arizona, and it's clearly higher than the state budget of Colorado, a neighboring state. So what categories does this estimate include? Yeah, great question. And, and absolutely right. So this is really the economic costs. So think not of the, the annual costs to any entity or individual in any one year, but rather cumulative lifetime economic costs. Of, and this is, this is uh, one minor correction, it's both the deaths and the abuse. So, so uh, a fentanyl-related death, the, the economic cost is pretty self-explanatory in that we have the statistical value of a human life. Um, so CDC using that was able to estimate the, the value of lost lives due specifically to fentanyl overdose in 2017. Using that and the data set that we collected for the report, I could annualize that over a decade. Um, but the other piece well, of that wait, is, a minute, wait, wait a minute, I want to stop you there. So what you're telling me is these deaths of people that we shouldn't be losing is really costing our economy. So it's the economic cost to our economy of these fentanyl deaths. So in effect, however these fentanyl deaths are occurring and whoever is supporting the fentanyl coming through isn't destroying our economy or in effect impacting negatively our economy. 
Do I hear that correctly? Absolutely right. And and it's worse, frankly, on the abuse side. So on the abuse side, you have far more folks who are who are dependent on and regularly abusing fentanyl. And this is just the estimates that we get that folks volunteer to, to federal statisticians when they're asked survey questions. So it may even be higher than we think it is from these reports. But, but that abuse results in medical costs, social costs. They're more likely to commit crimes or be victims of crimes or have involvement with law enforcement. Um, and productivity costs, they're less likely to hold jobs. They, they work fewer hours on average than folks who aren't dependent on drugs. None of this is surprising, but we all kind of know that intuitively. But, but what's kind of novel is to put a dollar amount to that figure. So, okay, you've got 5,000 people a year dying and you've got 30,000 people a year who, who are, you know, chemically dependent on, on this drug and you sum that up. Uh, and annualize those kind of lifetime costs. And, and that's an impact of about $53 billion in, in contemporary 2022 Arizona dollars. It's staggering number. And the other um, thing staggering that also helps put context on this is the number has quadrupled in about a decade. So 2011, we were at about a $10 billion annualized cost using the same methodology, same CDC methodology from 2017. 2021, 2022, we're at over 40, uh, uh, excuse me, over $50 billion. Now, is that just unique to fentanyl that you're talking about, this tripling or or actually all opioid-related opioid overdoses and deaths? So it's not strictly speaking unique oh to fentanyl, goodness. but in practice, most of the shift since 2016 is towards fentanyl. So, so it's increasingly fentanyl, but technically it's also so any of your prescription opioids, your illegal opioids, and your fentanyls. So you're telling me the fentanyl has become far more available than what was available before or what people were using. So it's a it's not only an alternative to the to the uh, synthetic opioids that were used before, it's now become something cheaper and more readily available, and uh, causing the increase in suicides as well as overdoses. Am I hearing you correctly? I think that's probably fair, but that's probably also a question that can be better answered by Joby. That's one of the problems that we have as we try and look at this from kind of an academic and a data perspective. Um, we have some idea how expensive prescription drugs are, how dangerous prescription drugs are. We have very little idea by the very nature of black markets, how expensive the street price of fentanyl is on a regular basis. You know, uh, things like that. Does that make sense? Sure it does. Uh, Joey, let's follow up with you. And I want to try to, if you can, uh, weave into the previous question I had for Glenn, but also talk a little bit more about the impacts of fentanyl possession as distribution and how you see the crisis uh, in Arizona, and then any uh, additional thoughts you may have about the uh, massive growth in uh, suicides and deaths due to opioids from 2010 to 2022. Well, I mean, crisis is the right word. And we've gotten so used to just saying that, that it might not stick out that this is a crisis. Police responding to overdose calls day in and day out, uh, multiple times a day. Almost all officers now carry Narcan. That's a medicine that can counteract the effects of fentanyl. Um, we aren't medical how quickly professionals. Does that, how quickly does that have to be applied? The quicker it gets applied um, within minutes to you know 15 minutes, depending on what the effects are. And sometimes it's more than one application. I, I've heard stories of 10, 12 applications to, to bring the person basically back to life. So it's, it's as the fentanyl, as they're overdosing, their, their breathing gets shallow. They start to slow down. And at some point, their heart stops. And, and, you know, that's when you have to take 
both the the Narcan affects the nervous system to to kind of counteract what what fentanyl is doing to your to your muscular system. Um, the problem that comes into this and you know, it, it, I, I've had it happen to me. You have someone who, you know, was by themselves, was or with their drug addict friend, and they're in a car and they're taking fentanyl. They pass out. They are about to die. And now all of a sudden, when this uh, Narcan takes effect, it's immediate. They wake up. They don't know where they are. Well, now here I am as the police officer right on top of them. And so a lot of times these turn into fights, into skirmishes. It's a dangerous position to be in, um, making sure we have you know enough officers there. The other problem that comes in is these calls that come in, they come in as unknown trouble. You know, someone passed out at a car at a gas station. So we're not dispatching the firefighters or the paramedics who probably need to be there um, because these subjects, when we do administer Narcan, they still have to go to the hospital. They still need to be medically cleared by a doctor. It's not just a fix and then and then it stops there. It's really putting a strain on our law enforcement. And then we additionally then have to call in EMS and fire and paramedics. So it's causing a strain on a lot of first responders. I'll go back to the to what Glenn was talking about. You know, when it was when it was prescription drugs that were illegally being sold on the street, just you know, five, 10 years ago, a lot of times those oxycodone, hydrocodone, those were going for about $20 a pill. Fentanyl, because of its availability, um, started high. But as as we've gotten more and more availability, I'm hearing stories these days that they're selling some of these lower-end lower fentanyl pills for $2. So oh, these yeah. panhandlers on the street that you know are standing out on the media and asking for a dollar too, they're just trying to score a couple bucks so they can go score their, their another hit of fentanyl that's going to last them, you know, a couple hours until they do it again. So it's this reoccurring circle and it's, it's really, it's so available and so cheap that it's getting into more and more of our society, our, our teenagers, um, our homeless population. And, and the more they use it, the more they get addicted, the bigger the problem we have. Uh, not uh, a very uplifting conversation so far, guys. Uh, but again, this, Probably shouldn't be one. Glenn, uh, what are your thoughts on how Arizona's economy is being affected by the fentanyl crisis? You've been deeply involved uh, with the governor and done some terrific work, but uh, how's the fentanyl crisis uh, impacting Arizona's economy? Yeah, well, clearly, as you as you described in the previous question, the the magnitude of the economic impacts of this crisis are massive, unprecedented, and have increased extremely rapidly over the last 10 years. All of that said, you know, in practice, the Arizona and American economy are both very large, very diverse, and very advanced. By themselves, the opioid epidemic probably wouldn't be sufficient to, to push the economy over the edge, but in practice, the economy appears to be at some kind of an inflection point. The opioid epidemic, rising violent crime rates in Arizona nationally, rising inflation, collapsing consumer confidence in open southern border, rising home prices, rising interest rates, all of these things combined appear to be pushing the economy over that edge. So I think in practice, Arizona and the United States, if they're not already in recession, will be in recession in the next six to 12 months or so. And I think that recession has the potential to be relatively severe. One of the things policymakers can do to get us out of it and start doing that damage, one of many things uh, is to address border security in the opioid crisis in part. But I don't think by itself that would be sufficient to solve all of our economic problems. So it's one part of many that need to be addressed. Public policy is important in this area. Can you tell me, uh, Glenn, what, if any, public policy that you're aware of in uh, Arizona 
might be under consideration. Um, be interested. I know our listeners would be interested. Yeah, well, I, I, I can tell you that uh, most recently the legislature did a number of things in the past session to try and address the border, excuse me, the border side of this crisis specifically. There was the the largest appro- single appropriation in state history for border security efforts. I think the amount was $500 million going from memory. In practice, though, state resources are dwarfed by federal resources. Uh, the most important policy changes that need to occur probably need to be at the federal level. And this is what, what Joby was saying, and I agree with him completely. You know, Border Patrol has billions of dollars in funding specifically for Southern border security, that funding has been increased dramatically between 2001 and and today, basically since September 11th and the recurring politics over the Southern border. The problem isn't that the federal government lacks resources, it's using those resources for other things. It's not using them for physical or border security, it's using them for environmental study, environmental review, migrant processing, things like this. And we highlight some of that in our report. And as a consequence, they're, they're allowing physical security laps, drugs to get through and trying to shift that burden to the states, we can't compete. We don't have the resources to to act as a, at the state uh, level you can't compete. Exactly. Okay. So five hundred million dollars basically shows up as a footnote in a federal budget. Seems to me that you're you're just you're suggesting that maybe we need some uh, leaders to think about the possibility of uh, making some changes that you're suggesting, and hopefully they'll take them into account. Joby, uh, or Job, I'm sorry, in 2018, the Arizona legislature passed the Arizona Opioid Epidemic Act. We've referred to the opioid situation and what came out of this in previous bits of our conversation. It limited first pill opioid prescriptions and increased reporting requirements for prescribing physicians. And I guess what amazes me is that uh, all of a sudden the prescriptions were cut in half. And it took a law like this to cut them in half. So you have to wonder, were those prescriptions even needed uh, to begin with, to have that kind of reaction? But have you seen this affect uh, uh, drug crimes since 2018? In effect, have drug crimes gone down because of this legislation? And are there other drug policies that have contributed to the current situation in Arizona? Actually, I think it's the exact opposite. Drug crimes have gone up, um, but that's because, like you just said, were all of those prescriptions necessary? And the answer, if we've cut 50% of them, is probably not. Probably not all of them were, because there was a black market for those prescription pills to be sold on the street level. And whether that was fake prescriptions, people you know, pretending they were injured, uh, pharmacy robberies, there were all sorts of reasons that con- you know controlled substance, controlled pills were out into the street. However, what's happened now is because we've taken that supply away, criminals are opportunists. They see an opportunity and China, Mexico, that gateway of just bringing in tons and tons of fentanyl that is not regulated, that's not made here in the U.S. So that's one of the bigger problems is we don't know, you know, sometimes one of these pills you know, it's made in a lab in Mexico. And so it might contain, you know, a thousand grains of fentanyl where really it should only contain 10 grains. And that's where some of these overdoses happen. You know, you hear the teenage kid that took the pill for the first time ever and overdosed with one. So with that said, um, yes, I think these, these changes, I mean, has created an opportunity and criminals are taking that opportunity by bringing up the illegal fentanyl. To me, the biggest thing or the first step that we could do to start seizing this problem is to control the border. Are there any other uh, 
acts in Arizona besides controlling the border that would help out law enforcement uh, or maybe help control this? Public policy, laws that you would encourage to be reviewed? I personally, you know, we, we've decriminalized a lot of these drugs. We talked about this earlier in the program. Um, there's a lot in southern Arizona, I can speak of where I worked, where we would not arrest someone when we found them in possession of a controlled substance. We would take them to a treatment facility. The problem is they would be out the, the back door before we were done doing the paperwork in the front. There could be some changes. Um, there is time for treatment. I agree with that. However, um, you know, that has to be up to the person that's addicted to the substance. And when they're not ready for that, uh, we need to have laws in place or enforce the laws we do have in place of putting some of these people in jail and in prison until they're ready to make that decision on their own. Glenn, in your report, you highlight the things contributing to the drug and crime crisis. What are some of the biggest factors that you've seen that could be causing the increased drug-related crimes and overdoses? Yeah, I think I think we've highlighted most of these and, and a lot of these throughout the program. But But if I had to summarize it, at its core, there were lessons learned. We went through this. We went through the 70s and the 80s in the United States. Uh, and there were many lessons learned and policy reforms made during the 80s and the 90s in response to that. As a consequence, we had a period of 25 to 30 years of falling violent crime rates, falling drug, drug abuse rates, and we got spoiled, frankly, and, and some of those lessons were forgotten, and policymakers began to experiment, I think, with some of the things that Joby just talked about, if not outright decriminalization, that it at least tacit decriminalization where we stopped enforcing the laws on the books, and these are state and local criminal laws. These are federal immigration laws, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, the consequences are all around us. So the simple answer is relearn, you know, look back to, to the lessons that we learned in the 80s and the 90s and reapply some of those lessons that, to, to clean up the streets and enforce the laws already on the books and get the bad laws potentially off the books. And that should uh, turn things around, hopefully. Well, in my conversations with people at that particular time, what I heard them saying, if you had somebody that was a significant contributor to the drug problem, whether it's a drug dealer, but they were handled differently than a person who was a, a user, and they were given a chance to kind of clean up their act. And uh, if such, uh, a felony charge was uh, decreased to a misdemeanor charge, and if they continued to stay clean, their record was expunged. Now, I know that's not occurring as much today as it was. Are you alluding to that as kind of we could have learned some things from the 70s? Right. So so sort of to address that, what, one of the premises that's used to sell decriminalization is, is that we can do a good job. And maybe Joby, in fact, could speak to this even more intimately than I can, but I can try to speak to it kind of academically once removed. But voters were sold this notion that police and, and prosecutors can do a good job discriminating between the problems, the dealers or whoever, and the the victims, the casual users. And so, you know, laws were passed intended to, to allow those casual users to bypass the, the system effectively. Uh, in practice, though, I'm not sure they could discriminate as well as we think. I think um, because of the plea bargaining and all of that, uh, in practice, you had someone that authorities suspected was a dealer, but the easier crime to prove is the simple possession crime. And so you get them to plead out to the simple possession so you can get them on something. And then they look on paper like they're, they're 
a victim of the system. They're just users, not dealers. When at the beginning of their encounter with law enforcement, they were suspected of being a user. So that's a very long-winded, convoluted way of saying, uh, I think those were the kinds of feel-good policy changes that that actually resulted in the current problem. And those are some of the things we need to take a hard look at, but that's going to be hard to do. Uh, Joe, I want to, to push you on the idea of border security and uh, the, the leniency of having a larger leniency at the border, and now that's contributing to drug crimes. Uh, uh, what is what is your sense of of uh, kind of the current situation uh, with regards to the I would say the flood of immigrants and flood of uh, of drugs coming across the border, or the leniency? How in the world do the border agents handle that, and uh, how does Arizona change that? You know, Earl. Um... It's a it's a tough question, but I will tell you that, I mean, with the policies that were in place prior to 2020, there wasn't this flood of immigration. And what we have to realize is there's if if a person comes to a port of entry with identification and seeks asylum, that's legal immigration. Customs and immigration can deal with that. But when they come through an area that's not a port, that's illegal immigration. And that's something that's straining our resources. And again, if we weren't having our border patrol agents deal with thousands of people a day, they would be out patrolling the smuggling routes. The smuggling routes is where the illegal drugs is coming in, in masses. And those, I mean, like I said, two pounds of powder, think how small that is. Um, you know, that can get up to Colorado very easily in the backseat of a, of a car and then can be processed into thousands and thousands of pills. So we we need, again, to have our policies looked at at the border so our border patrol agents can better patrol those smuggling routes and, and funnel our immigration issues through the ports and maybe have some policy on what we need to do to have a better immigration system or an easier immigration system. And that's above my pay grade. Um, but that's really what I think one of the solutions would would fix this problem. You're saying, in essence, just enforce what we say, that how the process is supposed to work. You're saying enforce it. Yes. Okay. Well, you, you mentioned Colorado, and obviously I'm in Colorado, and I'm quite interested. How is uh, Arizona maybe a port of drugs coming into Colorado? How is that working? How do you see that from where you are? It's how this fentanyl crisis has matured. I lived through this early in my career with the uh, methamphetamine crisis with marijuana. I remember... Uh, in Tucson, Arizona, where I worked back in 2000, you know, a bale of marijuana costs $200 and an ounce in New York City costs $200. So as the further you go into the country, the, mo- the more it takes. And so Tucson was the first stop. We have interstates that come up. We have I-19 from the border. We have I-10 that goes east and west. You go north into Phoenix. You have I-8 out to California. You have I-40 um, further that goes into Colorado. And so these avenues of distribution is how these organizations work. And they kind of, it's, it's almost like at home delivery that we all experience with our Amazons and other businesses. These cartels work the same way and they drop their product as they go. Um, so Colorado, uh, does get drugs from the southern border and that comes through Arizona up there. That can affect your residents uh, extremely. Um, you know, marijuana being legal in Colorado is one thing or in certain parts, but the illegal marijuana that comes up that supplements that still hurts your economy. 
So in essence, Arizona is kind of the front door to the western part of the United States. That's how I see it in my my 20 years of experience. Okay. And there's been ebbs and flows. There's been times where policies and more drugs are coming through. There's been times where we've been able to focus more on local issues. Glenn, your report points to many costs incurred due to this crisis. Do you have any policy suggestions that you think would potentially reduce the crime rates and the economic impacts of the drug, drug crisis? You mentioned some of the things you're doing in the 70s. Do you want to add to that? Yeah, I think we've talked about the big one um, quite a bit, but, but the southern border is the vehicle by which the drugs are getting into the United States. I think that's that's clear in the data. And uh, something has changed since 2020 with respect to to flows across that border. I don't think that's a coincidence. So so step one, revisit the policy changes since 2020 and and fix the border. The other thing we've talked about that's that's worth repeating, states need to reconsider their own policy changes that they have made in the beginning in the mid 2000s to today that have begun to be more lax with their treatment of drug abusers, drug dealers, and petty criminals in general. And then third and finally, and I think we're already seeing seeing some states experiment in this space as well, including Arizona in the past legislate, uh, legislative session, but states should reconsider that there is a legitimate need for chronically ill patients to have access to relatively safe prescription medications so they aren't driven into this kind of underground street black market. And uh, we can undo some of that demand for fentanyl potentially by by revisiting the crackdown since 2016 to find a middle ground that that ensures the unneeded prescriptions aren't being filled, but at the same time that, that those with a legitimate need are actually able to get access to to safe uh, prescription medication. Okay. Safer, I should say. Yeah. Uh, Joe, but, uh, you alluded to, and Glenn, you just did, uh, completing the physical barriers. Uh, we didn't allude to it. You actually just talked about enforcing the, the, the uh, laws we have on the books with regards to import, I'm sorry, immigration. What do you think about the physical barriers and completing the physical barriers and how might that impact uh, drug enforcement? I think you alluded to that before, but I think it's worth repeating. Yes, I, I've talked to Border Patrol agents, and barriers work. They impede. They're not perfect. They don't keep everything out, but they make it more difficult for these smugglers. And it's not just, I mean, there's a wall. When they need a wall, there you put a wall there. But there's also technology. There's drones. There's sensors. There's cameras. So there's infrastructure that could be put down at the border that, the technology greatly, you know, increases the the force that Border Patrol has uh, to work specifically. It's always going to be a cat and mouse game. It has been. Um, but I believe the United States has the technology and has the resources to f- secure our border and, you know, fight these cartels and take the control back. Well, Glenn, Job, thank you both for your time and incredible insights on this topic. I hope the policymakers, business leaders, and the community will take the time to really consider the value of CSI's research on Arizona's fentanyl crisis and read our research report on commonsenseinstituteaz.org. Gentlemen, thank you. And to our listeners, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the Common Sense Digest. For more on today's topic, as well as our research on the most pressing public policy issues facing Arizona, please visit commonsenseinstituteaz.org. The preceding episode, along with all others, is available on podcatchers everywhere or on our website under the podcast tab. Our technical producer is John Ekstrom and Deft Communications. 
This has been a production of the Common Sense Institute. 